0: All right, that was a little Sarah Jaffe with Clementine. I'm Janine, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. Do you want to mention we are on Twitter at FM. I'm on Twitter at moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock. We're on Instagram, KUCIFM, Tumblr, dot Facebook.com forward slash KUCI889. Up next, my next guest, Arnie Ben, evolutionology, the power of knowing how people work. Good morning, Arnie.
1: Good morning.
0: I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, This book, how did this come about?
1: Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, It kind of grew out of my own process of self-analysis and trying to learn how I was being and how I was growing as a person. And when I was analyzing my own growth, I started seeing that what I was going through, everybody else around me seemed to be going through exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of boiled it down to its fundamentals, and then I, I felt I needed to share it. So that was how it all started.
0: I, when I was reviewing this book, I noticed in the back, it says, fear is the default human emotion. And I think sometimes people react in anger, but it's really fear at the root of that.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. There are only, in my opinion, two primary emotions, positive emotions and negative emotions. Um, everything else is just commentary. And the, the, it all emerges from our survival instinct. Since we are mortal and we can be hurt and we can be killed, our deepest truth as a, as a species is to stay alive, survival instinct, our fight and flight response, which everyone's quite familiar with. So everything that happens in our lives, we funnel it through the, the concept of fear and we, our, our emotions decide for us whether we're feeling vulnerable or whether we're feeling safe. If we're feeling vulnerable or afraid or insecure in any way, even if it's only perceived, Mm -hmm. we'll experience a negative emotion like fear or anger or depression, frustration, resentment, any of the negative emotions. And if we feel the absence of fear, if we're feeling safe, then we'll feel some of any of the positive emotions, happiness, joy, comfort, love, whatever the whatever the case may Mm
0: -hmm. be, I grew up in Manhattan and I lived there for about eight years growing up and talk about fearful. You know, I was taught, like, don't look anybody in the eye and carry your money in your shoe. And so, you know, but I but I had to learn how to be strong. At, like, you know, I became a tomboy out of this uh, feeling of I was, some days I was scared and some days I was going to be tough. Right. You know? Right. So let's talk about, there's a lot to talk about in your book. How long did you really think about this book before you wrote it? Because I feel like it's very deep and filled with a lot of, you know, really interesting insights.
1: Thanks. Well, I feel that I've been, I've always been very interested in personal growth and in trying to become the best person that I could become and try to understand my weaknesses, what was holding me back. Um, I've always tried to focus on what what makes life worthwhile and, and, you know, what do I want to achieve by the end of it all. So I've always been analyzing my own behavior. I've been through, you know, several different, I, I was religious when I was in my 20s. Um, And during my 30s, I kind of stepped back from religion. So I've been through several different phases in my life. But the commonality was always self-analysis, trying to understand what's important about life. And, you know, how does one become better? What's it all about? um, And why do we do the things that we do? Uh, You know, one of my primary frustrations, which led to this book, is, you know, we've been raised to believe that human beings are civilized and that we're sophisticated and that we have free choice and that we're with the most evolved species on the planet. So I kind of grew up with this, almost with this expectation that people are innately good and are going to do the right thing. But I gradually came to realize that our motivation is primarily safety and security. We're all primarily motivated by what is going to make us feel more safe Mm -hmm. and what is going to make us feel less vulnerable. And we, We make all of our decisions and our choices based on that criteria. But because that seems like such an unsophisticated um, low level of operating, Mm -hmm. we tend to dress all of our choices and our decisions up in layers of rationalization and justification in order to make us feel good about our choices, in order to make us feel that we're making good choices and that we are right. Because the only way to feel safe is to feel that you are firstly in the right group that will provide you with some protection and that you are in the right group so that you are right so one of our primal motivations is to feel right and justified which is one of the reasons why we're always giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt but we're always being critical of other people
0: Mm -hmm. we
1: never give other people the same benefit of the doubt that we give ourselves and that's the reason
0: It's really interesting. You know, I was thinking about my my kids when they were little. I never put the news on because it seemed so frightening. And I thought they don't need the stress of seeing what goes on in the world. And I think it causes a lot of anxiety. And I feel like with the technology that sits in their hands, their phones, that they have access to so many things. And it causes so much stress and depression, anxiety. What's your thought on technology and social media Um,
1: I think that like most things in life it's a tool
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, it's neutral it's not good or bad it depends how it's used Um, it's a very difficult thing it must be I I don't have children but if I did have teenage children right now I would also uh, be very troubled by what they're exposed to and how do you how do you control it how do you rein it in how do you protect them how do you guide them when you're not even aware of all of the things that they're being exposed to. Right. So it must be very difficult for parents these days.
0: It's extremely difficult because I feel like kids, number one, they're growing up too fast. They're, they're doing things on social media they shouldn't be doing, um, or they're seeing things they shouldn't be seeing. Anything, anything they want is out there, you know, and, and all the news and how graphic it is is on the palm of their hand. And it, it causes so much duress. People say to me, do you let your, pho- your kids have phones in the room at night? No, never. N- no, there's never, ever a moment their phones are in the room because at night they just need to unplug and that's it. They're done.
1: I think that's great.
0: You know. So what would well, you like? Well, I let- think the
1: primary reason yeah, go ahead. for children these days to have phones is to be in contact with their parents if there's an emergency. Right. So when they're at home, there's no need for that.
0: I agree. So let's talk about your theory of evolutionology uh, and how this all came about.
1: Well, as I said, um, it it grew out of my own self-analysis when I started to realize what was behind my own motivations, and then I started to realize that it was the same with everybody. So the the theory that I developed, uh, and by the way, the title evolutionology is designed to be a contraction of the words evolutionary behavioral psychology. Because, in my opinion, everything that we think and do, all of our psychological makeup and all of our behavior, derives directly from our survival instinct. So, in the beginning of the first chapter of the book, I I begin by talking about animals. We all know quite well, animals live in a world of limited resources. They have to compete for their survival. Some of them are predators, some of them are prey. So, simply being outside can put them in mortal danger. Mm-hmm. So in order to deal with that, um, animals are group thinkers. They have to belong to a group because they safety in numbers. If, if you have one zebra by itself, it's, odds are it's going to be eaten by the lions. But if it's in a group of 100 zebras, there's only a 1% chance it's going to be the one to be eaten. So animals have to arrange themselves into groups in order to feel safe. Now, humans are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. We... Uh, we live in a world of limited resources. We have to compete for our survival against other humans. If we don't work and earn, we starve. If we need to feel safe, we need to be part of a group. So I think this is one of the biggest things that people don't realize is how powerful our impetus towards being part of a group is. We are group thinkers. It's not very nice to think about because we like to think we're more sophisticated than that. But if a human being is not part of a group, their sense of vulnerability will become overwhelming to them. So everybody's first priority is to select the group. It'll probably be the group you were born into, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a group that you choose because you like the ideas. But once you choose that group, whether it's a political party, whether it's a religion, whether it's a, a military, whether it's a, a corporate structure, whether it's a family group, whatever it is, you will choose your group and you will derive your sense of safety from your group. Mm-hmm. The problem is that because this is now your group, you know, animals and humans are all group thinkers. It's all about us versus them. We have to assess where the threats, the possible threats are coming from. So we become experts at differentiating between us and them. The familiar is safe, but the unfamiliar is potentially dangerous. So humans are group thinkers through and through. So everything about our society, everything about our lives is filtered through that vision. We are a member of a group first. And then, unfortunately, the people in the other group are the competition. So we subconsciously ascribe all sorts of negative things to the other group because they are them
0: yes. and we are us. Sure.
1: And this is playing out so palpably and powerfully in American politics today because the sides have become so polarized. And on both sides, they're not only so polarized, but they've become so vehement that they are right. They're absolutely convinced that their ideas are correct. Yes. And since they are correct, the other group must therefore by definition be wrong. Yeah. And if someone's wrong, then you have all the justification that you need to decry them, to naysay them, to call them names, to persecute them even. Um, and that is at the root of all of the trouble in our society.
0: It makes so much sense when I think about what's going on. Huh. The truth of politics, yeah.
1: unfortunately, is that the healthy place is in the center. I mean, I, I'm a passionate centrist. I, I, ascribe, I aspire to be a centrist, but obviously I, I don't always succeed. I, I fail on some issues to the left and other issues to the right. Mm-hmm. But to me, the, to make our country healthy, we all have to acknowledge that the best ideas from both sides, meeting in the middle, is what will bring us to peaceful coexistence.
0: So is that a sense of let's have some empathy and understanding for one another?
1: Well, that's definitely very important. Yeah. But I think the group think stands in the way of that empathy. Yes. In fact, there's research. I don't have the, the source at my fingertips here, but there's research that I quote in my second book, which shows that there's an empathy gap. If somebody's not part of your group, then there's your brain processes empathy towards them differently.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I, mean, I was looking through this book and your blog. Could you mention your blog, by the way?
1: Uh, sure. It's uh, arnebenbooks. dot com. It's just a website where I publicize my book, and i I don't I don't publish blog posts very often. Um, I just have three or four up there or five right now. Every now and again, when when something really takes me, I, I like to post something about it. Um, I, I should be better about posting more often. <laughs>
0: Well, you're juggling a lot of different things, obviously, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh One thing that struck me on your blog, which was so fascinating, I, I had to read it a couple times, so I didn't get it at first, but then I, I, I picked it up. Nature, insistently fractal and self-similar, excuse me. Um, there's a nautilus shell, is that correct? Yes. And all these different designs. And it is really fascinating. I used to go snorkeling when I was little how in nature, you have this sense of symmetry and it's gorgeous and you're thinking, how did this happen?
1: Right. Well, well, science is one of my loves, as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. And I've always been struck, not always, but for several years I've been struck by the similarity between the shape of a spiral galaxy and a hurricane and the Nautilus shell and so many other spiral shells, shapes in nature where the Fibonacci series, the, the golden spiral, shows up And many people are aware of that, and they say, oh, it's the Fibonacci sequence, it's the golden spiral. Nobody asks why. Why does nature show that shape showing up all of the time? Mm -hmm. And if you think in science, things don't work by coincidence. If two things have the identical structure, it could well be because similar forces are responsible for forming it, which begs the question, what similar forces are involved in the formation of a spiral galaxy and a hurricane? And a nautilus shell.
0: Right.
1: And it's interesting because if you look at the uh, satellite images of a hurricane and you look at a nautilus shell, the mother of pearl, the, the, the striations, the, the textures on the shell are identical to the textures, the lines that show up in the clouds, storm It's quite remarkable. Amazing. The, the shapes are not similar. They're, they're identical. What I did was I took, I took a picture of a spiral galaxy I took a Nautilus shell which is just kind of one spiral a a, a galaxy is a double spiral so I I copied the Nautilus shell and I I flipped it 180 degrees and I superimposed them on each other to make a double spiral and then I superimposed an image of a galaxy on top of that and all of the bright bands of stars that you see in the galaxy are along where the lines are on the shells
0: That's remarkable And bright
1: stars show up on the nodes where the lines and the shells intersect So it's remarkable that these things show up in nature and science does not yet have a grasp on why what processes are in fact behind it but I'm convinced that there must be a scientific explanation for why these shapes are ubiquitous in nature I have a I have a theory I have a suspicion about what might be behind it but I don't necessarily want to say because I don't have proof for it yet but it's a fascinating study
0: If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Arnie Ben. He's written a book called Evolutionology. Uh, He's an author, teacher, composer. So let's talk about the quiz, the Evolutionology quiz. How did that come about? (laughs)
1: Yes. So what I did was I tried, since, as I mentioned to you before, I'm a passionate centrist, and I believe that the healthy place is in the center, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the two extremes. The further one goes towards either fringe, either extreme, the more dysfunction and the more exclusive thinking and the more exclusionary people become. So I tried to design a quiz, a multiple choice quiz, which could allow people to try and visually see where they are on that spectrum. So I use the analogy of a pendulum because a pendulum can swing to an extreme left position, it can swing to an extreme right position, and it can be anywhere in between, including in the middle. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I created a multiple choice quiz with four separate quizzes one for religion one for politics one for sex and relationships and one for self confidence and on each one of them i designed quest 10 questions multiple choice questions where the answers are spread across that spectrum so by answering the multiple choice quiz you will get a visual at the end that presents you with a visual representation showing you 10 pendulums in various positions on that spectrum so that you actually see where your views are on the spectrum between extreme right, extreme left, with the center being, according to my theory, the center being the healthy, balanced place. Um, So those are are in the book.
0: Excuse me one sec, Arnie?
1: A friend of mine coded a website where it's far easier to do it where you just click a button and then it gives you your results at the end so that can be found at evolutionology.com
0: so let me ask you about the pendulum because that's really intriguing how did you come up with that whole concept um well just
1: as i mentioned to me it's all about the extremes versus the middle okay so it seemed that the pendulum seemed a very logical metaphor to use for that
0: It's really interesting the way you design the book, because you've got the quiz, and then you talk about the methodology. What other things would you like listeners to know about the book?
1: Well, when I began this process, I actually intended to write one book, and it has since evolved into two. Mm -hmm. Evolutionology is the first installation, which essentially just describes the whole theory that I've been talking to you about, Mm -hmm. about the animal group thinkers and human group thinkers and how similar we are. And then what I was going to do is have the first chapter be, that's the theory, and then each subsequent chapter would take one topic at a time, politics, religion, science, happiness and depression, relationships, and I would show how every aspect of our lives is a simple and clear manifestation of our survival instinct and our instinctive thinking. Um, The book was getting quite big and unwieldy, and I felt that it might be more effective to simply to simplify the theory down and to release that as its own book, um, and then release a second book which goes into all the details and has one chapter for each topic. So that's what I did. So uh, Evolutionology came out, I believe, the beginning of last year, or perhaps two years ago.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I'm almost done with the second one, which, and I'm using the title for the second one, which I had intended using for the, the whole book, which is called The Animal in the Mirror. I like that. For the obvious reason that... We are, we are essentially animals first and humans second. And, and let me just take a moment to clarify that. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Okay. Human beings, biologically, chemically, are almost identical to animals. Our DNA is 98% similar. You can even transplant certain animal organs into humans. In order to learn about neurology, we study the brains of animals, of even rats. So this clearly shows the similarities between the anatomy and the physiology and the chemistry of humans and animals. So we have everything that animals have, but we also have something else. We have the ability to rise above that and to revel in abstraction and spirituality and to strive for these idealistic concepts. But the, pro- the problem is that most people think we are already there, and I'm here to say we're not. We are living our lives like animals. And that is why the world is in the condition that it's in. That is why people treat each other the way that they do, because we're group thinkers. We are fear-based group thinkers, and we're funneling everything through our own sense of personal safety. It's possible that we can rise above that and act according to ideals and live a higher life. But that is not how the vast majority of people on this planet are currently living, which is exactly why I felt it was so important to write this book, Because, you know, we're living under this misapprehension that we are already evolved. And I'm here to say we're not. We can be. We have Mm -hmm. the potential to be. But we're not there yet. And until we realize that, we won't actually start to move more effectively in that direction.
0: I want to add that there was a section called the human blind Blind spot where you say, We humans are experts at denial and avoidance. Like a talentless Mm -hmm. singer auditioning on live television, we do not see the truth. We only see what we want to see. Right. Wow, that just struck a chord with me. And
1: one more thing which fascinated me when I did some of the research for this book is the concept of free will. Mm -hmm. Most people think that we all have free will, but it's very interesting. There was research done in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Benjamin Labette, I believe, was the scientist who began this research. And he did this experiment where he placed electrodes on people's heads to Mm -hmm. capture their brainwaves. And he placed them in a scenario where they could make free will decisions. They could do actions they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And he monitored their brainwave activity. And what he found was that when somebody made a decision that they thought was a free choice, the brainwave activity that was building up to that action began up to 10 seconds before they became aware of even wanting to make a choice, which is a remarkable result. Yes. So many of his colleagues pointed out, There you go. No such thing as free will. We're we're automatons. Mm -hmm. And Benjamin Libet said something remarkable. He said, no, you don't understand what free will is. Free will does not mean that you're plucking an idea out of thin air and then acting on it. Free will is veto power over your impulses because your survival instinct and your fear is constantly causing these motivations to be bubbling up from your limbic brain, prompting you to act one way or or another in order to make yourself feel more safe. And free choice means, first, you recognize where those impulses are coming from. They're coming from your fear, from your survival instinct. Yes. And second, the ability to say, you know what, no, I'm not going to act on that impulse. I'm rather going to act this way because this is acting in accordance with the ideals that that I believe are more important. Mm-hmm. So the person that has that kind of mastery over their emotions and their impulses is somebody who has free will, which is a fascinating concept because it means that not everybody in the world does not have free will in equal measure. It depends on the mastery that you've attained over your emotion and your impulses.
0: Can this also be applied to people that have fear of public speaking? Because it sounds like, you know, if you have anxiety to get up there, but you have I always say like you've got one this um, insecure person on your left shoulder and somebody that's strong on your right, but sometimes you feel like the weak person is winning and they're going, I can't do this. But then I I feel like the person on the right shoulder is going, yes, you can. I'm going to kick you, you wimpy person, off my other shoulder and I can do this.
1: Yeah, well, again, that's exactly that same thing is taking hold of the instinctive side and mastering it and not letting the fear um, run your decision-making for you. The only reason people are afraid to speak in public is fear of making a fool of themselves, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of being rejected by the group. Yes. All fear.
0: Right. Wow. So, Arnie, where can people find out more about you? You can find
1: out a bit more about me on my website, arniebenbooks.com, A-R-N-I-E-B-E-N-N, books.com. There's some information there. And uh, my book can be found on Amazon. The digital version is actually a free download. Oh. But obviously the printed book isn't. Right. Um, Yeah.
0: Fantastic. I want to thank you so much for calling in. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. All right. My pleasure. Be well.
1: You too. Have a great day. You
0: too. Bye-bye. That was Arnie Ben calling in. He's an author, teacher, composer. He's written this really fascinating book, Evolutionology, The Power of Knowing How People Work. And if you'd like to find out more about it, all the info is up on my show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kci.org, And uh, the complete conversation will be up on my blog within an hour or so. Uh, Right now, Sheldon Abbott is standing by with Cure for the Blues, and we're going to listen to uh, one song. I'm going to wrap the show with Jeff Buckley. This is Last Goodbye. If you'd like to find out about being a guest on the show, just send me an email to Janine, J A N E A N E, at kuci.org, And you can follow me on Twitter at moms underscore rock. Have a great day.